I got a chance to uh, go around the lake myself. With bad knees, that's a terrible idea. However, as I was going around, I ran into a number of you. These ladies right here had paparazzi around them as they were taking pictures when I walked by. Right? And, and I don't know who that man was, but it was very nice of him to take your picture. That was very nice. Um, I went around, and I believe it was, is it Summer, Shauna, and Adam, right? Is that correct? All right. Got a chance to hang out with you guys, talk with you guys a little bit. I ran into a number of you. Some of you were swimming. Some of you were hanging out. And it was super fun to see you out and about. Um, I just want to remind you that when I'm up here, uh, my function is really just being your local pastor. So here's kind of what I wanted to encourage you. Right after this, I don't know what happens in this room afterwards, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down by the snack shop for about an hour after this. If you have questions, you just want to kick back and talk, or if you want prayer over you, well, for this time today, this week, I'm your pastor. So I would love to just pray with you. I'll be down there. I answer to almost anything if you can get my attention, right? You can call me Lance, you can call me Pastor, you can call me Pastor Lance, you can just say, hey, and then usually that works as well, so I'll be there. Um, one, one announcement I did find out, your name is, I'm sorry, Melissa. Uh, Melissa wanted all of us to know that she's taking notes on her phone and she is not screwing around. All right, so <laughs> Melissa had her phone out, she said, I take notes on this, I'm not doing something else, I just need everyone to understand that, do not question her motives. She is all into Jesus and she is not playing games. All right, there you go. I don't, can't answer for the rest of you. All right, uh, now we're going to dive into this um, and uh, we're really going to be focusing on the importance of relationships, okay? You go, I thought we were talking about Moses. Yeah, 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 we are. Uh, people matter to God, yeah? But boy, are they difficult. Would you agree, right? People matter to God, but they're really hard uh, to be with sometimes. So I'm going to ask you a little bit of interaction questions, just raise, raising your hand. Uh, how many of you have had significant hurt from another person in your life? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you are walking through it right now? Anybody walking through hurt right now from somebody else? Yeah. How many of you would say that you have church wounds? That means you were wounded by somebody in the church. Yeah. Maybe even leadership. All right. Uh, how many of you are walking through that right now? Anyone walking through church wounds right now? Okay. How many of you are in leadership in, back home? Anybody in leadership? Yep, it's a whole bunch of you. All right. How many of you have been wounded by the people you lead? Anybody been wounded by the people you lead? All right. Uh, how many of you are struggling to trust and love people in general after all you've been through in your life? Anybody struggling? with trust and loving people right now? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Um, I would love in, in, a, in a comfortable setting, if you're cool with it, uh, if you need to process that kind of stuff and you can talk with me about it, I kind of get it. No matter what the hurt is, I can probably gather that I've walked through part of it, right? So if you haven't got a chance to process that with somebody, I would love to do that with you. Maybe while we're up here, you can just pull me aside and talk with me, but... I want to take you into Scripture, and I want to show you how God worked with Moses and began to form in him deep relationship with himself and actually deep relationship with the people that he had to lead. And that is fascinating about how God does that, all right? And Moses now has Israel in peace, right? They've now got out of Egypt. That's where we left off. We're now out, there's a whole Red Sea thing, all that's done, Egypt is behind them. Should assume that everything's cool now, but suddenly the problems have just begun. There's immediate squabbles, there's fears, and all this stuff makes the people very re resistant to be led. But people matter to God. I'm going to keep saying that. People matter to God. Now, I don't know if you're a note taker, but you can just chew on this thought. You can't hate God's wife and his kids and pretend to have a good relationship with her. What do I mean? Well, you can't hate God's wife. Who is God's wife? The bride of Christ. Who is that? The church. 
There's an awful lot of Christians out there that have been burned, and they're like, yeah, I don't like church. Okay, well, if you don't like my wife and you want to be close to me, we're going to have a problem. Yeah? I understand sometimes she's wrong in arguments. I get that. Right? But got to give her a break. You can't hate God's kids. That's just his Christians. You can't just hate people and think that you have a good relationship with God. Sometimes we need to heal up because we're bringing an awful lot of bitterness with us, and I would suggest that I'm still wrestling through it myself. Yeah? So I get it. I'm not here to judge anybody. I'm not here to throw anything on you that I'm not going to deal with myself. How does God begin a relationship with his chosen people? It's interesting because he's now going to bring them out. Remember, the Hebrews have been in slavery, and they've been underneath the covering of Egypt for 430 years. All their traditions, they're really not really there. They've just kind of made it up in slave life. God draws them out and he says, I'm your God. How in the world are they supposed to wrap their mind around what that means? What do you mean I'm the people of God? I don't feel like the people of God. I feel like a slave because that's all I know. You know what my mom was? A slave. You know what her mom was? A slave. You know what her dad was? A slave. Do you understand what I'm saying? We just have all this long history of not being a special people. And God calls them out and he said, you are my kid. So how in the world is he going to create a relationship that they might understand they are the people of God? Well, in the stories we're about to read, I'm going to give you six different things that he does. All right? So once again, I'm going to just share these out, and I will recap them along the way. First one, frustrating fears. Number two, freaky fire. Three, laying a firm foundation Four, watching them fall apart. And five, fusing fellowship. That's how he's going to do it. And you're like, ah, okay, let's watch it. All right, let's pick out frustrating fears. Israel is about to walk through their greatest fears. Now, we give them a lot of heat. If you've been in the church for very long and you know anything about Israel, they kind of do the same bad stuff over and over and over again. And we constantly get frustrated with them. And they're like, wow, they're dumb. Until you realize they're a lot like us, <laughs> then it's not quite as funny. It is natural to fear the physical dangers they're walking into. They're about to walk into the wilderness. They do not have any idea on how to be a nation. They don't have a whole lot of weapons, and they are pretty exposed. There's nothing wrong with them having natural fear of what's going on, but God is going to exacerbate it. He's going to make it worse, which is intriguing. We're going to talk about why that is. But here's the point. We can't trust a God we don't know. We can't trust a God we don't know. It's interesting because I think about all the, the grandmas and grandpas. Anybody grandma and grandpa in here? Grandma and grandpa? All right, there's a bunch of you. It's so tempting when your grandchild goes through something to send him a card or a note and it says, oh, honey, just trust the Lord. Okay, what if they don't know the Lord like you know the Lord? How are you supposed to trust a God you don't know? All you did was just create a refrigerator magnet. You understand what I'm saying? Trust God. Okay, I don't even know what that means. If I don't have a relationship with him, why would I trust him? Trust who? I don't even have a conversation with him. I've never seen him move in my life. Why are you telling me to trust someone I don't know? So before we can get to the trust, we actually have to meet him. And we actually have to have some engagement with him. And sometimes that's a pretty crazy process. All right, so we're picking it up in Exodus chapter 15. And there's a story that, that pops in there that is relatively relatively well-known. Some of you might not know this, but they're just coming out. They're three days into the wilderness, and there's no water. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting water, yes? I mean, you're like, oh, you're so selfish. <laughs> well, we kind of need water to live, yeah? All right, so they come upon a lake or a pond of some sort, and they're like, oh my gosh, we're so thirsty. And they all run up and they try to drink it. And it is so nasty. 
Now, it's not poisonous. It's just you can't get it down. If you're starving of thirst and you still can't choke down the water, it's bad water. Yeah? And so they're like, oh, my goodness, God's messing with us. So they get mad at Moses, and they're like, Moses, I can't believe you brought us out here. We're all going to die of thirst. So he turns around, and he's like, hey, guys, this wasn't even my idea in the first place. Turns around to God, and he's like, what in the world? What are we doing? And then God gives him a super weird answer. You guys remember the answer? <laughs> uh, he's like, hey, see that log, <laughs> right? There's just a tree limb over there, a piece of wood. He's like, drag it into the water, and it'll be fine. Now, this is not like an ancient purification system. This is flat out weird, right? Like, why would I drag a piece of wood into the water? There's lots of wood falling in the water. Why is it not better? He's like, trust me. So he drags the wood into the water. The water becomes sweet and palatable, and they can all drink. Now, it's funny because you can kind of reflect back on that, and you would go, gosh, that's a weird miracle. What, what was that all about? Anybody know what that was about? I mean, we don't know for sure, but yeah, all the way in the back. Uh, this is what he just said. He said, I see some Christology there, which right away made all of us, oh, I'm intimidated. He said the word Christology. And what he said was, is there anything else about an act upon a piece of wood that would make that which is terrible good? Yes, this is the cross, right? It's the cross. It's exactly what he just said. He preached it better than anybody else could. He just said simply that when you have a situation where we're all dying for our sins and Jesus Christ takes the cross, puts it into a bad situation, it makes it sweet, yeah? Is it possible that that was all a big setup for a foreshadowing of something that was going to happen in the future? Yeah, but it was sure scary, right? But God establishes obedience in this story as a manner of healing. He said, I'm not going to give you the diseases I put on the Egyptians. I'm going to be your healer if you walk with me. So he starts revealing his nature. I'm the healer guy. And they went, oh, you're a good guy, right? Because they don't know how many, how many hundreds of years did they pray to get out of there. And he didn't do anything, so they would assume he was absent guy. But now he's present guy, now he's healer guy. And they were like, oh, okay, I'm starting to understand. And then he gets them to the next place, and there's 12 springs, and they can all settle down and calm down and reflect on it. You would think, well, at that point, they're surely their hearts are for him. Hmm. Well, then sure enough, we're 45 days later, and they are already done with this whole wilderness thing. Personally, as a guy who doesn't camp very well, I understand this. 45 days into the wilderness, they've had, they have no food. Everybody complains to Moses and Aaron. They said, I would have rather died in Egypt as slaves because at least we were fed. Now we're just going to die of hunger. Moses and Aaron said, hold up. I understand you're hungry. I understand your concern, but let me warn you on something. Be careful of becoming a grumbler or a complainer against God. Now, as a matter of fact, God shows up in a cloud, tells them he heard their complaining. He said, hey, I heard you. As a matter of fact, you'll eat meat tonight, and in the morning, you will be filled with bread. I need you guys to take me seriously. Sure enough, what happened? In the evening, quail came into the camp and everybody had food, had meat. In the morning came what? Manna, this miraculous crumbly stuff that showed up on everything. Anybody know what manna means? What is it? <laughs> I mean, if you want to talk about something that's descriptive, uh, they looked out and they're like, what is it? They're like, yep. That's exactly right. And you're like, that can't be the name. That's the name. Manna, what is it? I don't know. But it's bread. 
The Lord brings manna, and the Bible says he brings it with rules to test them. He said, I want you guys to be able to gather it, but when we get to the end of the week, I need you to be able to hang in there. I'm going to give you enough for two days, but I don't want you gathering it, and I don't want you storing it. If you try to store it, it's going to go bad on you. Now, people, of course, all tried this, and it kept ruining. There's maggots in it and all this stuff. So there was all these, like, rules on, on how it works. And it says that God was testing them. Well, of course, the people didn't follow instructions. Moses got mad. But here's what's interesting. It says God tested them. And have you ever reflected on what it means for God to test? Because if I was to test you on something, I'm trying to learn something right? I mean, I would say, like I did the trivia thing last night. Well, I was trying to figure out, because I don't know how much you knew about this story. But if God knows everything, why is he testing us? Because we think of tests as a revelation of information. He already knows. So why does God test people? Is that a, is that a fair question? Okay, just think about that for a second. In one sense, testing is to demonstrate what it's made of. It's a demonstration. Uh, let me give you an example. And if you are working on a sprinkler line, right, you're putting it all underground, uh, you would have to go through, and this happens with a lot of piping, you would have to go through what's called a line test. Do you guys know what a line test is? A line test means you put in the pressure and see if there are any leaks, right? I mean, that's ultimately what you're doing. When you are testing it, you are showing and demonstrating that it's solid. Is that correct? So in one sense, it's a performance, and it's a demonstration. So God would test his people, and they would show up as he knew they would, and he would say, look, I knew that about you. Now you know that about you, correct? But there's another way that he uses testing. And we can switch in the word training. When it says God tests them, a better word to use is God trained them. Why? Because God already knows the answer. You may know, but testing provides the resistance that creates the training. God knew they were either going to do good or do bad on the manna thing. What was the test for? It was a training of listen to my word, do what I tell you to do. Oh, look, you blew it. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. As a matter of fact, we're going to do this for 40 years. And we're going to try it again and try it again. Why? He was training them. When I tell you don't store it, don't store it. When you're trying to train 1.5 million people, you have to repeat yourself. Is that correct? He was training a people group, not an individual. So there's a lot of duplication. Is it possible that in our lives, God has a bunch of stuff that goes wrong or requires us to be pretty diligent for it to work for the purpose of training us? Is that possible? Is it possible that God is training you? Is that good or bad? Should be good, yes? Training is for the purpose of making you better. Uh, I went to the gym this morning, right? You know there's a staff gym here? You probably didn't. It's very secret. I went, into the, I went into the gym, and I immediately ran into a guy named Patrick. Anybody know who Patrick is? It's impossible to miss him. So I walked into the gym. I opened up the door, and Patrick's standing there, and he is shredded. He has so many muscles, I just kind of wanted to shut the door and like get in my cart and drive back, right? I was like, I'm in the wrong gym. Who is this guy? Here's what's intriguing to me. If someone shoved you to the ground and pushed heavy weight and started to crush your chest, you would say that they were a bad person. But we do it in the gym all the time on purpose, right? Why? Because the resistance and the crushing, when you choose it, you're going, I'm doing resistance training, and I'm building muscle. When other people do it to you, it seems like they're the bad guys, right? A forced gym experience. 
But the end result is what? Stronger muscles. Stronger ability to endure. God knows what you're going to need in your life, right? He knows what's around the corner. And he knows what you need to build up. He knows if you need to build endurance, if you need to build dexterity. He needs to know whether or not you need to figure out trust, whether or not you need to figure out faith, whether you need to figure out. He knows all that. You are in a constant state of training. And that is one of the ways that he loves you. I can tell you this from experience. I've gone on and off to the gym for most of my life. I don't like it. I like going home from the gym. That is my favorite thing. Because I've already done something, I feel good about myself, and now I don't have to do it anymore, right? So going home from the gym is awesome. Going to the gym is miserable. But there's a certain degree where it builds and it helps. All right, would you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. I just want to show you something about how God pictures this. If you've got a Bible with you, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, or if you have a phone. It's all right, Melissa. It's all right. It's all right. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. We're just going to read through this for a second. It says, and you shall remember the whole way that Yahweh, your God, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know. Your fathers didn't know it. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that came out of the mouth of God. Your clothing didn't wear out. Your foot did not swell these 40 years the book of Deuteronomy is Moses reflecting on the whole experience and talking about lessons that he learned. This was his recap. He tested you. But in order to get the test of manna, you actually had to be hungry. We seem to think that every time we come up to a need or a problem, that somehow God's abandoned us. Is it possible that sometimes an allowance of difficulty allows the rescue and the relationship to form? I, I know that we, we keep thinking that if we're good little Christians, nothing's going to go wrong. God never signed that contract with you. So when something goes wrong, we're like, what did I do? I don't know. I don't think you did anything. Because a lot of times you didn't do anything wrong. God's building you. But I thought, God, if I go to church all the time, then everything should be easier. Why? What if it is part of how he loves on you? What if it is part? But you can't have a miracle until you have a problem. To know the heart of God is the purpose of training. To become fully who he made us to be. Now, this is interesting. God keeps doing it to them. We also think that if God does one thing to us and we're like, all right, I got it. I don't think we've got it. We actually have to have repetitive training to do the same thing over and over and over again. So right after the whole manna thing, first it started out, oh, we don't have any good water to drink. Then it was, oh, we don't have any food. And then it was, now we're back to water again. Happens all over again. In chapter 17, it says that they had no water. The people quarreled against Moses, and Moses said, why are you testing God? And they said, well, you brought us here to kill us. So Moses complains to God, what should I do? They're all ready to stone me. And God's response was, dude, I can do this development and training all day. We can keep doing this game over and over and over. I want you to go out front, and I want you to strike the rock. There's a whole collection of rocks in front of me. I want you to go out with your staff, and I want you to strike the rock, and water's going to pour out of it. Moses is like, really? He's like, yeah. So he goes out, boom, everyone's like, oh, God is so good. Isn't that funny? I don't know if you heard me in the Sunday morning, but I said, don't ever let your circumstances dictate your theology, right? Because either good, God is good or he's not. But when they didn't have water, he was bad. And then they had a whole bunch of water, and he was amazing. Well, either God is bad or he's amazing. You're, what, in charge? 
of determining who he is? Or are you saying, my circumstances are difficult, my God is good? Yeah? Isn't that how we should be? All right. All right. So they're walking along, they get out of that, and then they get another problem. They get attacked by the Amalekites. Now, this is a famous story. They're commander, the only guy that had real war experience, the guy that was kind of trained for this, his name was Joshua. By the way, Joshua is one of the coolest characters in the entire Bible. I don't know if you ever have done any study on that guy. That guy is nails. So Moses says, they're coming to attack us. We need God's help. So he goes up on the mountain, which is rather comical when Joshua's like, wait, hold up. What's your job? Oh, you're up on the mountain. I'm doing what? Oh, I'm hacking people down below. Your job seems way easier than mine, right? So sure enough, Moses goes up on the hill and he brings his two buddies. He brings Aaron and then another guy named Hur, which is a terrible name for a man. Please don't do that. They're up on the mountain and this war, now they didn't cause the war. They're not soldiers. They don't know. So they're scared out of their mind. Well, they start fighting and Moses goes into a praise and worship posture of a God, we really need you. Have you ever stopped to think about why we raise hands in worship? Seems a little odd, does it not? What, what are we really doing? Because I think it's actually probably a little bit different for everybody. Maybe you don't raise your hands. Maybe you're from that group, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right, let's say if you raise your hands, <laughs> well, what are you supposed to do? And it talks in the Bible about raising their hands. Why? I think there's a bunch of reasons why we raise our hands in worship. One of them is the idea of surrender, right? So the guy comes in with a gun, stick your hands up, right? That's like an old Western thing. And so they would stick their hands. The idea is surrender. I can't do anything anymore. I'm completely reliant on you, God. Another one is similar to a little kiddo. Up, right? There's a whole bunch of reasons why we do these postures in worship. So sure enough, Moses does this posture. Well, the problem is when he raises his hands, they, they're winning. And Joshua's like, yeah. And then Moses is like, whew. And they start losing. He's like, dude, get your hands up. Puts his hands up and then they start winning. He's like, Ah, oh, this is exhausting. I don't know how long you can keep your hands up, but wars are really long, right? It's a really long time. So I don't know at any point if, if and this is probably how I would have handled it if I was Moses. I'm a bit of a smart aleck. I would go down, up, down, up, down, up, down, right? Just see who, if it was real. Like I was like, am I seeing this right, right? So sure enough, he does that while he's exhausted, and we know what happens. The other two guys are like, we got to help out. That's why we're here. So they put rocks underneath him, let him sit down, and they hold his arms up in a posture of this is God or nothing. Make sense? And Israel is winning the battle. Quick side note about that. I heard somebody teach on this one time, and what they said kind of floored me. I never thought about it before. Joshua's the new generation. Moses is the old generation. Moses, the older generation, was the one that had the covering over the younger generation. And as long as they were interceding for the younger generation, they won. But when they stopped interceding, they lost. The younger generation had the sword. The older generation had the staff. Powerful, yes? Be thinking through, if you're part of the younger generation, have you given proper understanding and respect and calling out to them to be your covering and intercede and shield for you? And if you're part of the older generation, if you are not interceding for the younger generation, what are you doing? They're getting slaughtered out there. Make sense? Interesting. Here's what's interesting about that battle. Because the Amalekites attacked Israel when they weren't ready, God put a curse on them. Does anybody remember when that curse was finally taken to task, when it finally came down? The judgment came down with King Saul, all the way down. So you go way down from there, when they set up a king, first king of Israel, God said, all right, I want you to go after the Amalekites. How dare they attack my people in the desert? And Saul went in and obliterated them, but he took all the good stuff and it was the reason that Saul lost being king of all of Israel. Boy, the Amalekites have been a pain in their rear for a long time. It was in this story 
that Israel established the phrase, the Lord is my banner. You guys ever heard that phrase? That became their name for God. God is establishing, have you ever noticed all these names that we have for God? Like if you go into the, the office where you do registration, on the wall, there's all these plaques. Every single name of God you see on there, and we all love those, don't we? We love those for our devotionals. Oh, I've done a study in the names of God, right? And we love this idea because it gives us an idea a little bit about who he is. Do you realize in almost every circumstance they got that name because something horrible happened? And God came to be their rescue. I know this life is hard. I know you've gone through a lot of pain. I also believe that in those times of pain, God became more real to you than he ever was before. I do know that some of you, if I was ever gonna ask how you grew in the Lord, you would take me back and say, there was this one terrible season and my God came near and I knew in that moment that he was mine and I was his. We know it in theory, but we pray to avoid all problems but it's in the problems that God reveals himself, yeah? All right. Well, sure enough, Moses is, is getting wiped out. He's just been doing this whole thing all on his own. He invites his father-in-law to come into town. Jethro is his name, which is a pretty awesome name. Jethro comes in, and it was take your father-in-law to work day. So he takes him to work, and all day long, Moses is telling everybody he's the judge, and they're like, oh, well, so-and-so scratched my car, and blah, 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 and they're all arguing, right? And so he's settling all these matters from morning till night, and he gets done, and he's like, well, Pop, what do you think? And Jethro's like, hmm, well, you're good at your job. And he's like, yeah, thanks. He's like, but you're doing it wrong. He's like, what? He goes, man, if you keep doing it like this, you're going to burn out in no time. He said, well, what do I do about it? He goes, dude, you got to set up structure, brother. You got to have like, you're the top dog. You're like the Supreme Court, man. You got to have all these other people. You got to have this structure that is organized and they allow you to understand, oh, well, what cases need to get moved up? What cases need to get moved up? Everybody else is handling the fact that that lady tried to plant flowers and someone walked over them. Why is she planting flowers in the desert in the first place? You don't need to be handling that, dude. You need to be handling the big stuff. I need you to put in leadership and leadership and leadership and put in a structure because you're never going to make it. Moses is like, dang, that's a great idea. It's probably one of the only reasons Moses can make it. Wisdom. Counsel. Here's something interesting. Mankind tends to fear failure deeply. We're very scared of failing. Why is that? Is it because our identity is too tied up in it? Why are we so scared to fail? Theoretically, wouldn't you say that you learn more from failure than success? Because if you did it right, you don't reflect, you move on. If you do it wrong, you reflect, you get it better, and then you move on. Is that correct? So we actually learn more in failure than we do in success. But somehow we believe that if we're good Christians, God will never let us fail. If we fail, he must have abandoned us or we did it wrong. What if failure is part of growing? You ever thought about that? Why are we so scared of it? God has always created and sustained our universe through process. In other words, human beings don't start out as full-fledged adults, correct? They start out as little tiny babies. And there's a process to grow up. How does a tree start? It doesn't start full-grown. It starts as a sapling or a seed. Everything that God does is in process. But somehow we believe that we should microwave our maturity and we should be able to be monster Christians without having to go through any process. 
But part of process is failure. Part of process is difficulty. Part of process is hurt. Part of process is pain. Part of process is not knowing and learning that in so many ways, we've got to cut ourselves some slack. If you're growing up as a Christian, you're growing up because that's how you grow up. We're really hard on ourselves. I can't fail. I can't do this. Oh, my goodness. I didn't do this right. I didn't do this right. I must be a failure. God must not like me. Stop with all that. You're in process. It's how God builds. You're supposed to make mistakes. You're supposed to not know everything. You're supposed to wonder and be confused sometimes. God's supposed to be smarter than you, right? That's not wrong, it's right. But here's what's interesting. So many of us really struggle with the ups and downs of Christianity. Oh, I'm doing really good. Well, well then why am I doing so terrible? Well, then I was doing good. Well, then I was... Part of that is just being human, yeah? Here's what's intriguing. We'll go to phase two. After all these challenges, no food, no water, being attacked, what do you think God did next? He amped up the fear. Why in the world would he do that? We just entered freaky fire phase. God says, I want you to all gather around Mount Sinai. And in three days, I'm going to show up. And I want everybody ready. Do you guys remember this? Mount Sinai, it's the, ma- it's the main special mountain where Moses gets the Ten Commandments, right? And so he said, I want everyone to gather around and I'm going to show up and reveal that I am God and I'm their God. And they're like, oh, so he's going to do something really sweet. Nope. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11. Let's read it how Moses remembers it. Deuteronomy 4.11. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire in the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then Yahweh spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Go to chapter 5, verse 4. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between Yahweh and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. Go to verse 22. These words Yahweh spoke to all your assembly in the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, behold, Yahweh our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of Yahweh our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and still lived? You go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and then we'll hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me and Yahweh said to me, I've heard the words of this people which they've spoken to you. They're right in what they've spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me, keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. One more recap, Hebrews 12, 18. Hebrews 12, 18 is in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 18 to 21. The author reflects like this, talking to Jews. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. 
that if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So it sounds pretty scary, yeah? They come to this mountain, God descends down on fire, darkness covers the land, there's lightning, all kinds of craziness, and everybody is scared out of their mind, including Moses. So why more fear? They were already afraid of not having water. They were already afraid of not having food. They were already afraid of these attacks. And now God shows up and scares them out. Why? I'm a bit of an expert on fear. Um, And I say that only because I wrote a book on it. And I did so because I have suffered from panic disorder since I was six years old. I've been on medication for the last 27 years. As a matter of fact, just me being in any area outside my home coming up here, I have to keep it in check. Went with a buddy on a short trip, had my first panic attack in a, that I, I hadn't had one for a year. All my life, I've had irrational panic attacks. Hmm. It's pretty miserable. Now, you need to understand that panic is irrational. It's a chemical reaction. It's not worry. It's not, oh, this is going to go bad. It's actually not tied to much of anything. You are immediately filled. Your chemicals all trip out at the same time, and you need to get out of your skin. Well, there's a problem. You can't really do that. Thus, the medication. So I know a lot about fear, and as a matter of fact, one of the most common commands in Scripture is do not fear. Have you noticed that? And here's the thing that gets everybody. And Jesus said, do not be anxious. And everyone's like, look, it's right there. It's not what it says. It says, do not worry. There's a big difference between worry and chemical reaction. So nobody quite understands it. So I've had to do an awful lot of study in it. I've had to live it. There is good fear and there's bad fear. Good fear is, oh my gosh, here comes a bus. That's good fear, right? Because you're supposed to get out of the way. Bad fear is, oh my gosh, my whole life's going to fall apart. That's bad fear. Why? Because Jesus said, I'm with you. I just changed the scenario. That's why he would rebuke the disciples. Remember when there was a storm and they all thought they were going to drown? Don't you care if we drown? Which is totally absurd. And he said, why do you have so little faith? He was rebuking them because he goes, guys, I'm right here. If I wasn't right here, maybe you could be afraid. I'm in the boat. You're fine. You've got me. So if you have challenges with worry and stuff like that, trust me, I have those normal things too, just like everybody else. Those need to be addressed by a deeper walk with God and a deeper faith and a deeper trust. So there's good fear and there's bad fear. And what's intriguing is that I grew up in the 80s. I don't know how old y'all are. But I grew up in the 80s. In the 80s, the church capitalized on fear. Everything was fearful. We had movies like A Thief in the Night. You guys remember this? Everyone was convinced you were going to get beheaded. It was like a big thing. And they were always talk about the mark of the beast. The mark, you know, everything was scare tactic, scare tactic, scare tactic. And it really messed with me because as a very sensitive young kid, it completely wrecked my world. I'm not a big fan of church using fear as tactics. Is there some necessary fear where you go, hey, you either have Jesus or you go to hell? That's kind of scary. There's some necessary. But as far as being purveyors of fear, I think that this is completely out of line. And here's why. Fear is super motivating in the moment, but the minute the fear piece is gone, it doesn't last. It's not a lasting motivation. You know what a lasting motivation is for people to follow God? Love. If you love God, you'll stick in. If you're just afraid of God, you'll hang in there until you're not afraid anymore, and then you'll walk away. 
what does this have to do with being at the mountain? Where's, where's the, listen to this quote. This is an Oswald Sanders quote through the lens of one of my pastors. I thought this was powerful. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. Why did God scare the people of Israel? Because he needed them to understand that he's bigger than everything. He was training them. He came in and he said, after you've seen that, you think I can't handle the Amalekite? You think I can't handle the Assyrian? The angel of the Lord destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Sometimes we need to learn the fear of God so the world doesn't have the corner market on scaring us. Do you understand that Jesus Christ is the commander of the army of God? Do you understand that he's a warrior king? Do you understand that when he walked in, and you gotta remember, he looks so normal. Normal 30-year-old Jewish dude. Nobody would have seen anything different about him. And he comes walking up and somebody's demon-possessed. Do you guys remember what happens? The demons freak out. They go, why are you here? Are you here to torment us before the appointed time? And they begin to shake. Why? Because they know what happens when he takes his costume off. They're like, I've seen him before. We got slaughtered in heaven. Yeah, I don't mess with that guy. And all he looked was so peaceful and so smiley. But you can imagine as he's ministering to somebody, and then he looks over at the demon and winks. And <laughs> the demon's like, ah! Right? He moved. Why? Because when you begin to see your Jesus as the mighty power God, suddenly all the stuff that you were so scared of before falls away. Why? Because he's there. We've done a terrible disservice to us that we have allowed in our lifetime entertainment to twist our theology. I can name a thousand horror movies where demons are really scary. And I struggle to name a whole lot where God is powerful. But when I read my Bible, I have a hard time finding any stories where the enemy is powerful and a whole bunch of stories where God is powerful. When you know God like this, it changes your perspective on the enemy. And he needed his people to be more afraid of him than the other ones. Why? Because he was their protector. Fear is a great beginning to a relationship with God, but it's not sufficient. We must move from fear, and he had to take his people from fear to love. And that's a tricky, tricky process. So, here we go. He establishes authority with Moses, and now he starts to establish a firm foundation with his people. God, he gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Uh, do you guys know the Ten Commandments? Anybody know how to name them all? Let's see if we can get them. All right? Uh, first one. No other gods before me. Is that correct? All right. Number two, you're not supposed to make any what? Graven image, which is something we don't even know what that means. It's a graven image. He said, listen, anytime you make a shape of me, you're limiting me. I'm bigger than whatever you can make. So don't make anything about me. Number three, don't take my name in vain. And number four, honor the Sabbath. Okay, do you understand that the first four commandments, and it's really neat that God has really been very nice to mankind. He starts out in the Garden of Eden and only gives them a couple commands, right? Be fruitful and multiply, and they're like, woohoo. And then he was like, and I want you to tend the garden. They're like, ooh, that sounds hard. They only had a couple. 
But then all of a sudden, he's like, all right, now we've done this thing a little bit. I'm going to give you 10 commandments. They're like, whoa. The first four are relational to God. The last six are relational with each other. Are you guys tracking on all that? Remember when Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hang on one thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your what? Neighbor is yourself. Everything hinges on love in all of Christianity. Your love for God. How do you get to heaven? Do you get to heaven because you did righteous things? No, you get to heaven because you have a love relationship with your protector, and he is the one that gets you there. Is that correct? All right. So while we have a vertical love necessity, we have a horizontal love necessity. We don't get to treat each other like dirt and pretend like we have a good relationship with God. Both of them matter, yes? Is that correct? All right, fantastic. So let's go on. Honor your what? Father and mother, don't do what to people? Don't murder them. Uh, and then uh, something about somebody else's wife. Don't what? No adultery, okay? And then the third one is don't take what's not yours, right? No stealing. Then the other one was no lying. And then the last one was no coveting. All of those are relational protectors for their society. And he was going, listen, you got to love me. You got to love each other. Now, here's what's intriguing about it. The people really, really got scared of God, and their response was, don't let him talk to us anymore. Did you notice that? I find it interesting that I get a lot of questions about why God is so silent today. How come I can't hear him? How come I can't hear him? How come I can't hear him? Well, we actually did a six-step process of eliminating him. Here's what happened. In the Garden of Eden, he talked face-to-face -face verbally. Then sin, selfishness, and pride from Adam and Eve, our representatives, ruined it. Step two, God spoke from a distance at Mount Sinai. His people, our representatives, begged him not to talk directly anymore, but to talk through a prophet. Step three, God spoke to the prophets. Then his people, our representatives, ignored them and killed them. Step four, God personally spoke through Jesus. But his people, our representatives, ignored him and killed the Son of God. Step five, the Holy Spirit is currently on step five. And he is working internally, primarily, not external audio. And he's speaking to us. And step six is Jesus will come back, fix the sin problem, and restore face-to-face -face communication. So, whenever we go, how come I can't hear him? I'm going to answer you the same way I answered an eight-year-old. They came up and they asked this brilliant question. Pastor, how, how do I hear God? And I said, answer me this. Where does Jesus live? And I said, same thing with the Holy Spirit. Where do they live? She said, in my heart. I said, okay. So, he's on the inside. Why would he use your outside speaker system? He's on the inside, he's going to use an internal speaker system. Is that correct? What is your internal speaker system? You don't use your ears. You use what? The intentions, your thoughts, all of that begins to reflect. Inside, you've got to learn how to use your internal speaker system. God is still speaking to us today. All right. Let's wrap this thing up because we ran out of time. This is Art's fault. Moses goes into that deep cloud and gets all of this download. He finds out Aaron's going to be the high priest. He gets the Ten Commandments. And he leaves. Joshua only goes halfway up with him. Moses goes all the way up. Joshua's halfway down. All of a sudden, this massive noise hits. And God goes, you need to get back down there. He's like, why? What's wrong? He's like, just go. He goes down and he meets Joshua halfway. And Joshua's like, dude, something's wrong. I, think, I feel like there's a war at the camp, and I'm the commander of the army. I got to go, man. I've been waiting for you. He's been up there for like 40 days. And he's like, we got to get down there. He says, it sounded like it was a war. And he goes, I found out it was a party. They get down, and what happened down there? Anybody remember? The golden calf incident. This is fascinating to me because... The people believed that Moses was gone, and when he was gone, out of sight, out of mind, they wanted new leadership, and they decided to do something horrific. They wanted new gods and to start over. 
Why in the world would they do that? As a matter of fact, they make this golden cow and all this weird, creepy stuff. And if you read it, and I'm not going to get very graphic because of our group tonight, but uh, look at all the euphemisms that the Jews use. This was not an ordinary party. We'll just put it that way. All kinds of stuff went loose. Craziness happened in there. And so sure enough, Moses is so mad that he breaks the Ten Commandments. You guys remember that? Imagine how cool it is that God wrote him. He would even know what font God liked. That would be pretty awesome, right? You're like, Comic Sans, that's weird, <laughs> right? So sure enough, he comes in and he says, Aaron, what in the world have you done? I left you and her in charge. You guys are a mess. And he's like, dude, I have no idea. I, I got a bunch of jewelry from everybody. I threw it and out popped this cow out of the fire. It was the weirdest thing. Well, sure enough, Moses is like, I don't, I don't even know what to do with you. Who's on my side? The Levites go. They said, all right, get your swords. You saw what happened here? Clean it up. He, he had them kill 3,000 people. He ground up the calf and put it in their drinking water said, don't ever do this again. Well, you were late. Don't, ma don't badmouth me. Don't grumble against God. Do not ever question me again, meaning God. So why would this happen? Why would Israel do such a ridiculously terrible thing? Because they didn't have a relationship with God to sustain it. He's still working on them. They're still brand new. Maybe Christians do weird stuff, do they not? So they're still in process. Here's what I think is interesting. I'm going to close with this. God has a conversation with him. He said, boy, those people are messed up. You know what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to kill them all and start over. Moses is like, what? He's like, yeah, I can make people like that. It's not that hard. I'll just start over. And Moses goes, you can't do that. Why not? Because everybody knows that, that you got them out of Egypt. They've all been watching this big drama, and it's going to make you look bad. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you're worried about them. You're worried about me. I appreciate that. Okay, I won't kill them. But they need to understand that they don't get to do this. He's like, okay, okay, I'll, get, I'll fix it. Here's what's so powerful about that. What was God doing? He was fusing a relationship between God and his, uh, between Moses and his people. Moses was really frustrated at him. But every time he'd get too frustrated, God would go, let's kill him. <laughs> and he was like, well, I'm not that mad. He's like, that's what I thought. He created Moses into an intercessor. For the rest of his life, he prayed for his people. I know that all this story, we're clicking through this. We were jumping chapter after chapter after chapter. But I need you to see the big picture. The big picture is that God wanted the hearts of his people. How do you get the heart of your people? It's messy. You're going to use all different tactics, all different processes. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's miracles. Sometimes it's joy. Sometimes it's sadness. Sometimes it's this. You guys, the Christian life is really messy. But he's trying to get your heart. He doesn't just want part of it. He wants all of it. And he will do whatever is necessary to win you over. It's interesting that Moses wrote that down and he said, oh, if they were only this passionate to be so concerned about what you thought, God, they would be more your people. But we have these ups and downs. Man, I was doing super good with Jesus for a while. And then not so good. Then I just kind of got fired up again. Then I went down and the whole time, God is saying, I want you to love me all the time. 
You know, I get it. Your life is confusing. I get it. You have a lot of responsibilities. I get it. You got stuff attacking you sometimes. You got fears. You got concerns. You got worries. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? And, and wh- who am I going to find? And am I going to have a life partner? And, and what do I do with this? And oh my gosh, I got this going on in my world. And I, and I don't. There's so many distractions. God's not going to try to be as loud as the world or as loud as your internal dialogue. But if we're willing to slow down and quiet down, here's what you're going to hear him say. I love you a lot. And I want you to love me as much as I love you. And I know it's been hard. And in some ways, I'm really sorry about that. You got to remember what my plan was. I never wanted all this sin and destruction and sadness. I never wanted loss. I never wanted any of this. I just wanted my people with me. And I will get you back. But until then, it hurts, I know. You see, when I read the Old Testament, I see a personal God. So many people say, oh my gosh, the Old Testament's so different than the New Testament. There's two different gods. There's the mean one, and then there's the nice pale one in the New Testament. Same God, never changed. He was trying to win their hearts back then, and he's trying to win our hearts right now. So whatever you hear from my messages, I want you to hear this. God will pursue you. One way or another, he's going to try to win your heart. Amen? Amen. Let me close in prayer. Is that okay? Or do you want to do announcements and close in prayer? Are you going to close in prayer? You're going to close. I'm not closing.